So we are journeying as a church uh, together through the book of Ezra. Pastor Jessica began us on this journey last week, providing the context in which Ezra's writings transpire. And effectively, the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, are in essence one collective history of the Jewish people's entry into and return from exile. Specifically, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which, fun fact, for a very long time were considered just one book, are the main biblical sources for the history of the return of Jewish refugees, and the arc of the story told through these two books is one focused on major moments in the rebuilding of a religious community after the time of Babylonian exile, and a return and restoration of the Jewish community. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah relate how God's covenant people were restored from Babylonian exile to the covenant land as a community. Now, sometimes the Old Testament can honestly feel very distant. And while I know we have our fair share of nerds and history buffs in the room, and at least a few exceptionally good trivia folk, most of us don't come on Sunday morning for a history lesson. So lest we end up feeling like this, or this, I will note, I wasn't actually going to have comics this week, but someone came up to me this week and said, great, you're preaching. Are you going to have comics? Those are my favorite parts of your sermon. (laughs) And I was like, well, I guess so then, because, well, I'll, I'll take it as though it's all good, but those are exceptionally good. That being said, if you have any suggestions, feedback at thetabledc.org. You can always send your favorite comics. Jessica will read them, not me. But I want to assure you that the history told through Ezra has every bit of applicability to our lives today as it did when it was written in 400 BC. And particularly our focus today does, which is that we are still called to build the altar first. So let us read from Ezra, and we begin in chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shiltil, I have no clue if I pronounced those correctly, but you can read them up there, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewilled offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Isn't that exceptional? See, the Israelites were called from exile in order to build a temple. And instead, they spent their first steps centering around God, giving their best to God, and communing with their creator. Now, again, to step back into this historical moment, 
the Israelites only returned to Jerusalem because the king at the time had made a decree to say finally they were welcome to return. And they were welcome to return to build the temple. But even though the king had made that decree, there were many people who did not want the Israelites to rebuild the temple. Many people who did not want to see the Israelites return as a community. And so people were afraid. It would have made perfect sense for them to begin by building a wall around Jerusalem to protect them from the people that wanted to harm them. Now at the same time, what they were told to do was build a temple. And some of these people had so remembered the glory days, that beautiful temple in the time of Solomon, and, and just waited to come back to that moment of their glory time with this beautiful temple. So it would have also made perfect sense for them to start laying that foundation as quick as they could for that temple, afraid that maybe the king would die, which seems to happen frequently in the Bible, or someone would just change their mind. But instead, they began with the altar. They didn't try to save the best items for building the temple, the building for God. Instead, they realized that they had to get their hearts right with God. That they had to worship their creator and acknowledge God's goodness, even in the midst of all the struggle that was experienced during exile. See, an altar is a place where a sacrifice is offered. It is a place where we venerate, where we center ourselves, and where we worship, where we surrender what we possess, and we do so because we recognize that everything we have is God's anyways. See, what we need to understand is that rebuilding begins by seeking God first, with giving ourselves to God. And when the Israelites returned from exile, they didn't start by building the temple, they started by building the altar. Because it's at the altar that we can come to center ourselves in God, where we can find a place where we are reminded of our creator and a place where we acknowledge God's sovereignty. The altar is the place where we find new beginnings, where we can center as community, and where we are reminded of our immutable worth. Throughout the Bible, we see over and over again, people come to the altar as a place for renewal. For new beginnings. In the Old Testament, we see many of the venerated leaders building altars for God in moments of great importance and new beginning. In fact, in Genesis 8, verse 20, we are told that the first thing Noah does when he exits the ark is that he builds an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings to it. See, Noah started the renewed chance at life with God at the altar. In Exodus chapter 17, we see Moses build an altar at the defeat of the Amalekites, which symbolized a new beginning for the Israeli people as they moved towards the promised land and marked a renewal in the Israeli people as they are reminded of what God could do. See, no one believed that the Israelites could beat the Amalekites, but God walked them through that. In 2 Samuel 24, we see David building an altar as a new beginning in his relationship with God after David had been weighed down by guilt. Now, as an aside, David is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he messes up over and over and over again. Uh, someone early yelled that he's messy, and he is. 
And, and why I love that is that David is still called a man of God, a man after God's heart. And honestly, this might sound a bit selfish, but if David can mess up as many times and as big as he did and still be good with God, there's hope for me too, right? It reminds me that grace is really abundant in God's eyes. Now, at this point in 2 Samuel 24, a plague had ravaged Israel as a result of David's sin. And we read the following as David turns back to God. On that day, Gad, who was a prophet of God, went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna gives all these to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But King David replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. Now, as followers of Jesus, we no longer make sacrifices of animals or goods on physical altars. And we no longer do this because Jesus, through the cross, paid the price for our sins once and for all. We were released from the old covenant. When we were reading through Ezra, there were these lists of different sacrifices required all under Mosaic law. And we don't do that anymore. And frankly, most of us probably even don't know what half of those were meaning. And that's okay because we're not required to do them anymore. But that does not change the centrality of the altar as our starting point. See, we are told throughout the New Testament that we are still meant to start with the altar and that the altar is a new beginning. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we are reminded that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, we are to do it all for the glory of God. And in John 15, we, we see Jesus tell the people listening that I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit. From, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is providing a new way to conceptualize the altar. Jesus is saying, you still need to start with me. 
You still need to center on me. You can't produce good fruit if you're not abiding in me and with me. See, just as in Ezra, where we see the first act as building the altar, as a signal of a new beginning for the people of God, so must we first build our altar before we build anything else. And what is so important is even if we think everything is destroyed, even if we're in exile, even if we feel as separated as we've ever been from community, we can always come back to the rubble and build the altar. What does that look like practically? See, we no longer have a physical altar where we perform sacrifices to God. Instead, we have been released from the physical to bear the spiritual. See, Jesus calls us to the altar when he calls us to follow him. And no matter what we are called to do, we are called to the altar first, to construct our lives around the altar, around central worship. And it's the only way to live lives that are focused on following Jesus is to build that life around the altar. Because at the altar, we are called to give our best to God and trust that God will work with it. Now, in Ezra, there were numerous things of value given to God's glory in sacrifice because they recognized that none of it would have ever been possible without God in the first place. If we're followers of Jesus, this means that before we begin anything, we need to first bring it to God. That could be our career, a relationship, even an argument. Everything has to be brought to God. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I don't always do this well. If I'm honest, the world can be pretty distracting. The reality is that my pedigree permits me to enter many doors, and I've been blessed with a lot of different opportunities. And sometimes, frankly, that can be distracting from what I am building around God. Now, many of you know that after college, I moved to South Africa to engage in education and youth empowerment-focused ministry. Many of you also know that this was the last thing I'd ever want to do. As I was thinking about what I should focus on after university, I was more focused on what would be the right next step for my future. And at the time, the Peace Corps fit into my 10-year plan. And I effectively would approach things where I would choose what I would want to do, and then I'd fill in the how this brings heaven to earth box after deciding. Right? Now, I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with the Peace Corps, per se. And for many people, this may be what was being built around your altar. But for me, the reality is my heart wasn't centered in the right place. I was choosing a path that I thought would lead to some sort of definition of success rather than building my life around the altar. And part of that was that I felt the altar was asking for too much. See, when we talked earlier about David's altar, you'll notice that David recognized something very important. He could not sacrifice what cost him nothing. David needed to pay for the materials for the altar he would build for God. Now, as a young person, I actually considered going into full-time ministry. In fact, before I decided to go to university, I considered going directly to the Salvation Army Seminary to become an ordained minister through them. My dad, you know, I'll tell you, my parents were so relieved I, go to, I went to college instead. And in fact, one time my dad approached me and said, you know, 
honestly, your mom and I thought this was a terrible idea. But we felt conflicted because we didn't know how to say, don't go follow Jesus. <laughs> so they were happy it worked out the way it did. And when I got to college, I eventually became involved with a Christian group on campus. A little delayed in doing so, but that's an entirely other story altogether. And I was actually asked to lead that group midway through my sophomore year. And honestly, I was pretty good at doing it. I was able to put a lot of things together. I planned a lot of great events. I was able to bring a lot of different people in. I loved the spreadsheets that I got to do. Again, it's why Jess and I get along so well. But at the end of my sophomore year, I did something I never thought I would do. I came out as gay. See, my entire sophomore year, I had spent time studying the Bible, praying, researching, talking to people about reconciliation of my faith and sexual orientation. I spent a lot of time with God. Now, I could spend too much time talking about this topic, but what's most important to this story as it relates to Ezra is when I gave up. See, in the middle of my first semester of junior year, after what seemed like an infinite number of hours-long conversations justifying my choice to come out, justifying me still belonging to the Christian faith, justifying my existence, I broke down. I remember one particular day that I just spent in tears. You know, one of those messy cries with Gross, boogers, not cute at all, not something you would see in a rom-com where people seem to cry really beautifully. You know, um, I also spent a lot of time praying and talking with God that day. And honestly, I'm a, I'm a bit ashamed of my conversation with God that day. I remember being really mad. And I, I told God that he basically ruined my future in ministry. Um, I... I felt I had a lot of hubris. I was like, listen, I was willing to become a minister. I wasn't asking for a big, big paycheck. I was willing to do this for you. I was giving up everything for you. What else did you want from me? And I felt like God was not keeping up his side of the deal or something. I basically said, God, if you wanted me to be a minister, why would you put this additional burden on me? Why would you make it harder? Now, as I've reflected over the anger and frustration I felt that day, I realized two things. First, clearly God did not ruin my future in ministry. Maybe to the disappointment of some of you. <laughs> but second, I was holding on to something. I thought God was asking me to sacrifice something that I needed, something that was security for me. But God was asking me to sacrifice a facade of control and comfort that wasn't really who I was and never was who I was meant to be. See, I was building what I thought other people needed from me and then asking God to come along rather than starting at the altar. But see, when we try to build something for God but don't build the altar first, we just end up with something temporary and hollow. And as much as we try, when we are just operating with a hollow shell, we've missed the point. We may be meeting societal standards or have achieved temporary happiness or prestige, but the emptiness remains. And that's 
really all I was. An empty shell performing for others because I so longed to be accepted and was so afraid of being who God made me to be. But we're not able to truly be ourselves if we don't have the altar at the center. What's interesting is that if we again step back into this historical moment that we're looking at in Ezra, is that the reason why the Israelites were in exile in the first place was because they stopped focusing on the altar. It was good for a while, but as the Israelites began seeing the other people around them, they turned away from God. They saw something that they thought might be better. Or they were so afraid of what was out there, they wanted to adopt those practices to protect them. They literally began to build empty shells of idols to other gods. But when my shell of a building came crumbling down, when what was left was rubble, when I felt furthest from the church and furthest from my community, God was still calling me back. And in fact, that was the moment where God could really build something. And this time I started with an altar. See, that same Christian group that I eventually resigned my position as its leader because of this experience is the same Christian group that had been doing work in Mamelodi, South Africa. And the same Christian group that wanted my help in thinking through the way to make an impact. It's also the same group I continue to work with 10 years later doing that very project. We were called back together to build something new. Once the false between us was destroyed, that's where God could really start doing work. I prayed, I trusted, I gave up my 10-year plan, which if you know me is very hard, and I moved forward with building around the altar, not caring about the edifice, just about what was at the center. Instead of focusing on what was to be produced, I, I wanted to focus on the why we were producing it in the first place. And part of why focusing on the altar is so important is that it's at the altar that we are reminded of our immovable worth, a worth endowed in us by our creator that never changes no matter what. And when we bring ourselves to the altar, when we center our lives around worship of God, we are reminding ourselves that our value in our creator is immeasurable and that it cannot be changed. See, what the altar meant to the Israelites is that God never gives up on his promises. The entire reason that the Israelites were in exile in the first place was because they had separated themselves from God. They had turned to other gods, ignored God's commandments, broken the covenant. But all the while, God remained steadfast in his love and promises to his people. And God, as promised, returned his people to him, returned them home to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And God longed for his people to be there. And we see God fulfill promises throughout the Bible. We can know that when God promises something, it will hold. We can also know that no matter how far we stray, God wants us to come home, to begin anew in the rubble by building the altar and then constructing whatever comes next around a place where we can meet God. 
Now, if we're honest with ourselves, and if I'm honest with myself, this can be hard. Mostly because the idea of building the altar first, coming to that altar first, has implications for our everyday life. If we start with focusing on God, on bringing our best to God, it means that we are no longer in control of what we are building. And that's scary. The scary part about the altar is that sacrifice costs us something. We might be called to give up prestige or finances, or perhaps we might be called to give up our anger or indignance, our self-righteousness. We might be forced to give up our facade. See, the reality is that God asks us to bring these things to the altar so that he can fulfill his promises to us and so that we can be fully who he has called us to be. C.S. Lewis once wrote in the Screwtape Letters, which if you haven't read is a really intriguing writing, which is basically C.S. Lewis writing between two tempters back and forth about humans. He writes, remember always that he, God, really likes the little vermin, us, and sets an absurd value on the distinctness of every one of them. When God talks of their losing themselves, he only means abandoning the clamor of our self-will, and once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality, and boasts, I am afraid sincerely, that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. Now, when we start with the altar, we realize that what we sacrifice at the altar is nothing to what we build around it when we keep God at the center. Let us pray. God, we thank you for who you are, for the sacrifices you have made on our behalf, for calling us to be with you and present with you. Lord, we pray that as we exit this space, that we are able to come to the altar, that we are able to focus on your presence, on what you are calling us to be. Lord, we pray that there, if there is something holding us back, fear, anxiety, that you can remove that, God, so that we can be truly who you've called us to be and have our life centered with you. In your name we pray. Amen.